Ryan, one of the pastors, and glad to get to preach this morning. As Chipper mentioned, we have maybe one of the shortest passages of all time. This is perhaps a record uh, for sermons here, and I'm hoping that my sermon length doesn't account, doesn't make up for the shortness of the, the passage, uh, but no, I think we'll end early. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're looking at Matthew 7, verse 12, and if you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along, open up, follow along, it'll also be up here on the screen, and if, you, if you're physically able to stand, would you please stand so that we can honor the reading of God's Word? Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can hear your word this morning. Thank you that we get to gather together to celebrate the good news of our Savior, that we get to hear the very words of our Savior, the encouragement, the challenge, the guidance, the wisdom, the love that comes in these precious words. Lord, I pray that you would still our hearts Lord, that that we would be still here in your presence this morning. I pray that you would give us peace. That for those of us that are coming in weary, Lord, that you would comfort us. For those who are tired, that you would uphold us. For those who are anxious, Lord, that you would give our, our minds and our hearts rest. Lord, for those who are grieving, that you would be near. And Lord, in all, all of these things that you would remind us that you are sufficient and that your grace is sufficient for today. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are receptive and that respond to you in praise and thanksgiving this morning. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's March Madness, so start talking sports a little bit here. Uh, you'll often hear coaches talk about the importance of fundamentals, right? So whether it's a new coach that's coming into a program uh, and is asked what he or she's going to focus on, or there's a new class that's coming in for spring or summer training, or there's a team that's struggling a little bit, you know, maybe their record's not so great. Coaches will emphasize the need to go back to the fundamentals. We need to review the fundamentals, right? Things like blocking and tackling, passing, dribbling, shooting, spacing on the court or on the field, communication between teammates, you know, the basics, the the foundation, the essential building blocks, not only for a successful player, but for a successful team. But you wonder, why is it that coaches of collegiate or even professional teams talk about the importance of the basics? 
and there are plenty of people in here who are far more qualified to talk about this than me, but I can only assume that it is uh, for the same reason that many of us need reminders about the basics. We have a proclivity as humans to drift, to forget, to get distracted. We can start to permit this little creeping lack of discipline that needs some course correction, right? Sometimes, though, in a desire to excel, to have peak performance in what we're doing, we can make things overly complicated, right? We kind of get overly fixated on these nuances or these details or these strategies or whatever, and we end up missing the forest for the trees. And in those cases, for teams and in our everyday life, we all benefit from returning to the fundamentals, going back to the basics. And this morning, that's exactly what we're focusing on. That's what we hear from Jesus. In a way, you could describe the entire Sermon on the Mount, the series that we've been going through, as the fundamentals, the essentials of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But this morning, we reflect on something that is at the very heart of what it means to be a person who lives in the kingdom of God. This could be said to, to be the central rhythm for the kingdom that Jesus brings. It's the core, it's the, the irreducible minimum, it's the central ethic for the kingdom of God. And so we're going to consider what that is and where it comes from, how we put it into practice. So we'll start with what it is, the, the ethic of the kingdom. You know, in this series, we've noticed that this sermon that we've go we're going through, Matthew 5 through 7, roughly falls into three sections. There's the opening verses that outline kind of the nature of true human flourishing in this world. Then there's the middle section, kind of the sermon body that Jesus is giving here, which explains the purposes of the life of the kingdom of God as it relates to righteousness, as it relates to, to piety, as it relates to this world. And then there's the final section, which we're going to turn to next week, which focuses on how we respond to all of this. But right here in verse 12 of chapter 7, the single verse for reflection this morning is a summary that Jesus gives of the entire middle section of the sermon body. And in it, Jesus distills the ethics of the kingdom of God down to this one sentence. <laughs> So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We know this as the golden rule, right? It's something that we're probably all familiar with. We may be real familiar with. We aren't actually sure where the golden rule name came from. There's, it's kind of disputed. But nonetheless, the principle is known around the world. You know, more than likely, it's, it's a rule or an ethic you've heard before, maybe from someone who's a Christian, maybe not maybe from someone who's not a Christian. You may have seen it in, in artwork, in a home goods store. Maybe it's hanging up in your own house, right? Or it's posted uh, in a school classroom. Or perhaps you grew up hearing it from your grandparents. It can take a lot of different forms. Do to others what you wish they would do to you. Treat others as you wish to be treated. And in fact, there are other traditions uh, throughout the world that have articulated the similar ethic uh, from, from figures that either predated or were near contemporaries. 
of Christ. So the Confucian tradition teaches, do not impose on others what you do not wish for yourself. According to the Jewish tradition, in response to uh, a question to summarize the entire law, I love this, summarize the entire law while standing on one leg. Some student really got, you know, like this, this harebrained idea to challenge the rabbi to summarize the law standing on one leg. Well, Rabbi Hillel in the first century answered, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. So if not this ethic per se, its sentiment is cited daily by parents around the world. Do you want someone to take your ice cream? No. Well, then you should not take theirs. Do you want your brother to hit you on the head with a rubber mallet? No. Well, then let's not hit your brother on his head with a rubber mallet. But Jesus' instruction here is somewhat different. It's a little bit different from these traditions. You know, all those other traditions, as far as I'm aware from, from my reading, emphasize the behavior that we ought not to do to others, that we ought not to harm others or cause injury to others that we ourselves would not like. And that's good as, as far as it goes, right? But Jesus' ethic is not merely to avoid doing unkind or unpleasant or unjust things to others. Jesus' ethic here is, is positive. Jesus tells us to do to others what you wish others would do to you. So think about that. That, that is anything good that you would want, any kindness, any act of generosity, any compassion, any mercy, any way that you wish someone else would, would treat you, if you were to swap places with them, that you should treat them as you wish they would treat you in that situation. We hear this rule over and over and over again, but when we stop to think about it, it's, it's quite demanding. That requires far more of us than just not doing things that we would not want done to us. In other words, Jesus tells us here that the central ethic of the kingdom of God is a sincere care for others, a desire for their well-being, a desire for the good of the other, to seek out the good of the other to the, to the same degree that you wish someone else would seek out your good. That is what it means at the core to behave like one who is a part of the kingdom of God. And there's nothing more beautiful than seeing that kind of sincere care and practice, right? Just think about the examples that Jesus has spoken about in the Sermon on the Mount alone. Seeking peace instead of holding on to anger. Pursuing reconciliation rather than harboring resentment. Living faithfully in your marriage. Walking and speaking with integrity and in truth. Choosing mercy over retaliation. Caring for your enemies. Even praying for those who wish to do you harm. Using what you have to generously support those in need. 
and adopting a humble posture that looks to the cares and the needs of others. This is beautiful. It's good. It's, it's compelling. As I was thinking about these examples this morning, a story came to mind from, from a few years ago. I was riding, uh, I, was, I was driving actually, and had a pastor with me, a friend, we were driving out somewhere, and uh, he was telling me that their, their vehicle had broken down. They had had some kind of major problem with their car, and they were just racking their brains trying to figure out what they were going to do. It was going to require some pretty costly repairs that they didn't have the money for. And so as we were riding in the car, his wife called, and she was in tears. And he asked what was going on, what was the matter? And she said that another family in the church had just called to tell her that they wanted to help pay for the repairs for their car. So I mean, several thousand dollars, as I recall, and they wanted to pay for it. And my friend just sat there stunned. You know, he was tearing up. She was crying on the phone. I was sitting there awkwardly. It's the third wheel to their conversation. <laughs> but I'll never forget that beautiful expression of sincere care that happened right here in this church. Church, I want to take some time. You know, there's a lot of different ways we approach passages, and we may say, these are the ways that we really need to grow. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I wanted, as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was so moved thinking about the ways that you do this as a church. And I wanted to take time this morning to share, and I share on Chipper's behalf and Jay's behalf as well, I think, how encouraged we are by the way that you embody this kind of care. You know, the story of helping with car repairs is one among many. I mean, I can look around this room and just see faces and think about story after story after story of ways that you care sincerely for one another and for others outside this body. The ways you practice hospitality, that you, you share meals, you open your homes, you invite individuals and families in to stay with you when there are needs. You give generously of your time and your money to help others with, with food or housing or childcare or to help someone find employment. You spend time helping those who are hurting, sitting with those who are grieving. You visit, you, you pray for, you check in on the sick. You provide meals for those who are adjusting to parenthood or who have lost a loved one who, or who are facing otherwise challenging life circumstances. You help people move, and we, there's a lot of moving that happens in Gainesville. <laughs> and y'all just keep showing up. <clears throat> Do home repairs. Show, you show appreciation and gratitude towards others. You speak words of encouragement to those who are downcast and who are discouraged. You listen well to those who need someone to be there for them. You have counsel to those who are 
confused, and just need a friend. And these are just stories that I'm aware of. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff that's happening that I have no clue about. And it is such an encouragement to hear example after example after example of sincere care for others that you all are doing. And I know it's probably weird to sit here and, you know, get bragged about <laughs> and encouraged, but I think that's important to show honor where that honor is due. And I want to say, I think I speak on behalf of Chipper and Jay, that it is a joy to get to be one of your pastors and to see Jesus in you in such beautiful ways. And we praise God for the ways that you faithfully care for others. So while it's so good to see this wonderful fruit and this evidence of the Lord's work, it's always good to think about, okay, how can we keep growing? What ways can we keep can we, can we keep uh, expanding in this? And um, I can't think of necessarily positive ways to, to focus on, but I want to think about what are some potential dangers, potential threats, things that can, can uh, challenge a culture of sincere care in a body like this, and how can we be attentive to those? So let's think about three, we'll call them care inhibitors to be watchful of internally and in, in, in our culture. And the first is ambition. You know, Americans are, we're hardworking people, right? We are, can always be chasing after something, accomplishing, achieving, building, we're, we're going after that next thing, that next goal. And, and that can be a great quality. But when the pursuit of ambition becomes overly important in our lives, other things can get crowded out. You know, care, sincere care for other people takes time. It often does not fit neatly into our Pomodoro time management philosophy, you know. It overflows. It's, it's messy. It is inconvenient. But if time is our scarcest commodity and we have filled it to the brim and overflowing, then what Will we cut when we're overextended and we're overcommitted and we have too many responsibilities and goals and pursuits? What the top of our list of things that get truncated is our care for others out of necessity. You know, and this is seen in that gut-wrenching classic, right? The 1970s Cats in the Cradle. Recounting the, the conversations of a father to his young son, the song's chorus ends with this refrain, when are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. And then the heartbreaking conclusion to the song comes in the final verse. As the father, in his old age, he reflects back on his life. And he says, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you, if you don't mind. And he said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure nice talking to you. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he'd grown up just like me. When you're driven by ambition, it's all too easy to lose sight of those around you who need you. 
And so let's beware of the siren call of ambition. Second care inhibitor to watch out for is comfort. Comfort. You know, it can be tempting for us to set artificial limits on our care for others. You know, sometimes these, these limits are healthy. They can take the form of an emotional or a physical boundary. And if that's necessary, then that, that can be good, right? That can be important. But other times, those limits can be directed more by our personal comfort. And that's something we need to be cautious of. When we think of how we wish others would care for us, what probably comes to mind includes that others would be willing to sacrifice their comfort or their pleasure in order to help us when we are in need. And so that means that we should also be willing to be uncomfortable in the care of others. Even if it doesn't fit within our schedule perfectly, or if it doesn't fit within our budget, or if it doesn't fit within our, our priorities for that week, even if it means serving others who aren't like us, or who don't agree with us, or who don't even recognize the degree of what we're sacrificing for them. We should still care and still serve and still help. Because that is what you would want if the roles were reversed, and that's the heart of the ethic here that Jesus gives. So it's beware of the allure of comfort. And then third, the final care inhibitor to watch out for is fear. How often do we find ourselves in situations where someone that we know and we care about is going through something and we don't really know how to respond? You know, maybe they're, they're grieving and we aren't sure if they want us around. Or it feels like it's, very, it's real personal and we don't want to be intrusive, you know? Or they're facing something that we've never experienced before and it just feels completely foreign to us. How do we react? We can be afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing, that we're going to do the wrong thing. We can be anxious that we will be unintentionally insensitive or offensive. We can be nervous that we're going to be inserting ourselves into their life and that we won't be welcome. And especially when others are grieving, we can feel helpless, that we don't know what we ought to do or how to help. And so, tragically, too often, what we can do is respond by keeping our distance. You know, we don't speak up. We don't inquire. We stay cautiously removed if all the while we're just kind of racking our brains about what to do. Let me just encourage you this morning, please don't let fear of stepping into an unfamiliar situation keep you from caring for others. Though they may feel the most unsettling, it is in these moments that people not only need you most, but that your care will mean the most. I, I heard a, a pastor share about his first church that he served in for many years, a dozen years or so. 
and they did a big celebration for him in his retirement. He came back to this church. They did a big celebration for him. And they got up and shared these stories about his, his ministry and legacy there. And, you know, he was struck by the fact that not one of them mentioned a sermon that he ever preached. <laughs> he said, all those sermons I prepared, all those lessons, all those Bible studies, no one mentioned that. What they mentioned was when he was sitting with them in the hospital room. And when he was there after they lost a loved one. And when they were struggling with mental health. And he was there to counsel them. It was those moments of pain, of affliction, of difficulty, of uncertainty that his, his personal presence and care meant the most. And that's true of all of us. It's okay when we come into those situations to just acknowledge, I don't really know what to say or what to do here but I am here for you. Because often when folks are hurting or confused, what they need most isn't the right word from you. They just need us to be there, to be a friend, to be a supporter, to be an intercessor. So I just encourage you, don't let fear rob you of one of the most meaningful ways that you can care for others. Let's beware the the deception of fear. So we see here the central ethic of the kingdom of God is sincere care for others. That's what Jesus has, has told us here. But where does this care come from? What is the source of this sincere care for others? How do we grow in it? Well, we're going to look at the second aspect of this, the power of this ethic, more briefly. Jesus finishes this summary verse with this statement. For this is the law and the prophets. He's saying that the sum total of all God's revelation in the Old Testament is captured in this ethic. To do unto others what you would wish they would do unto you. That is because the ultimate aim of God's revelation in the world is to form his people more fully into his image by his power. He has revealed himself generally in the world through general revelation so that his creation can behold his divine attributes, marvel at his majesty, worship him as creator as we were created and designed to do. He revealed himself to Abraham, to Moses, to David. He made covenants with them to create among all the peoples of the earth a people for himself who walk in his ways, who worship him, and who would be a light to an onlooking world. Take, for example, the, the case law in the Mosaic Covenant about thievery and restitution, right? They were meant to promote justice, which would create a people who live by the justice of God. Or the case law about widows and orphans, it's designed to promote generosity and mercy and compassion towards those in their society who are most endangered by life's circumstances. And therefore, to create a people who express the generosity and the mercy and the compassion of God. All of this is why the prophets were so outraged by the incongruity between those who professed to trust and worship God 
but who deprived individuals of justice or neglected the oppressed and the destitute. And especially when the chief guilty parties, the religious leaders, were those who should have known the best. Now, in this sermon, Jesus tells his followers that he has come not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. For this is the law and the prophets. And he said earlier in Matthew 5 that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a greater righteousness, a deeper righteousness required to enter the kingdom of God. And you recall another event in the Gospels later in Matthew where Jesus elaborated on the nature of this deeper righteousness. In response to a question from a scribe about the greatest commandment of the law, Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these commands hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying the same thing in his answer there as he is in this ethic here, that the kingdom of God belongs to those whose hearts are fully his. And the evidence of belonging to that kingdom is above all love love, a devoted love for God, and flowing out of that, a deep, sincere love for your neighbor. As Jesus told his disciples in his last evening with them, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. But it's not a list of rules to follow or duties to perform. There's an inner disposition that's required that he's talking about here. The extraordinary message of Christ is that it's the love of God that leads us to a love for God and for neighbors. Jesus told his followers that greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And the Apostle Paul summarized Christ's greater love for us like this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's in love for you that the incarnate Son of God gave up his life to atone for your sins. So you might not only be forgiven, but be born anew into his kingdom. And now by that same love, the risen and exalted Son of God empowers and equips you by the Holy Spirit to love him and to love others. Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. 
So sincere care for others, this action, this ethic, is born out of the sacrificial love of God that we experience, that we encounter, that is poured into us. Christ cared for you perfectly by loving you perfectly first. And it was his sacrificial love for you and the Father's love for you that drove his care for you. And it is that sacrificial love of God demonstrated to you, given for you, poured out upon you that fuels your love for him and for others and therefore drives our care for others. And so what is the greatest way that we resolve to live as Christ has called us to here? It is not to do first, but to receive. To be still and to receive daily God's grace anew. To receive daily the love of Christ personally for you. To daily fix your eyes on him. Delight in the God who loves you and who loves those around you. And then to seek daily to express the love that you have received in a thousand ways, in a thousand opportunities that he gives us every single day to sincerely care for those around you in all the ways that we enumerated earlier. I pray that this would be true of us and we grow in this in increasing measure for our good and for his glory. Before we turn to the table, I'm going to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which I um, unstrategically left over here. <clears throat> Pray for the Lord to do this work in us. O oh, Father of Jesus, help me to approach Thee with deepest reverence, not with presumption, not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. Thou art beyond the grasp of my understanding, but not beyond that of my love. Thou knowest that I love thee supremely, for thou art supremely adored, good, perfect. My heart melts at the love of Jesus, my brother, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, married to me, dead for me, risen for me. He is mine and I am his, given to me as well as for me. I am never so much mine as when I am his, for so much lost to myself until lost in him. Then I find my true self. But my love is frost and cold, ice and snow. Let his love warm me. Lighten my burden. Be my heaven. May it be more revealed to me in all its influences that my love to him may be more fervent and glowing. Let the mighty tide of his everlasting love cover the rocks of my sin and care. Then let my spirit float above those things which had else wrecked my life. Make me fruitful 
by living to that love. My character becoming more beautiful every day. If traces of Christ's love artistry be upon me, may he work on with his divine brush until I complete, until the complete image be obtained and I be made a perfect copy of him, my master. O Lord Jesus, come to me, O divine spirit, rest upon me, O holy Father. Look on me in mercy for the sake of for the sake of the well-beloved. Amen. Each week,